0: Hey there, it's Michelle Pilpich. I am a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, and your host of this podcast, Simply Intuitive. On the show, we are talking about all things intuitive eating, active living, and breaking down what's true versus what's a myth in the wellness world so that you can focus on simple and sustainable ways to actually improve your health. If you're feeling overwhelmed by all of the health information floating around and you just want to know what to do to feel your best, you're in the right place. Not only are specific tips coming your way, but you can also count on conversations that will challenge your perspective on what health really means. So I hope you'll stick around for many episodes to come. But for now, let's get into today's show. I am so excited about this episode. I am speaking with Dr. Pauline Peck, and Pauline is incredible. She is a psychologist who specializes in working with daughters of immigrants. She is one, really understands the experience, and just helps those clients and those women so, so much. And after Pauline and I connected on Instagram, then we chatted on Zoom, and after that, I was like, we need to talk more. She needs to come on the podcast because I hear from clients so often that their parents or grandparents who are from a different country, from a different culture than American culture, can say things about body image that are really triggering, can be talking about food and body in a way That is challenging for their own recovery or pursuit of intuitive eating. So I wanted to talk to someone who is a true specialist in this niche about, hey, what can people actually do? Like what practically is helpful as well as just share a lot of validation for the experience that like this is a real thing and you don't have to just... Suck it up. Um, You're not alone. There are plenty of other women in this community who relate and have the same experience. And Pauline has so many resources. They're all linked in the show notes and she walks through all of them at the end of the podcast. Um, But there are just so many ways you can get support and connect with people who are having the same experience as you. So you don't have to feel alone if you feel like, okay, I am a daughter of immigrants, and I'm struggling with body image. My family talks about food and body in a way that feels uncomfortable. Like, you're not alone. You can get support. We can talk about nutrition, and Pauline is an amazing resource for therapy if you are in California or New York, and so many other ways to support you no matter where you are. This conversation just inspired me in so many ways. I mean, Pauline is like a just grounding presence and just listening to everything she said gave me so many nuggets of wisdom that I want to go back to and just kind of think about and journal on and like bring them into my own life because I felt inspired. So I hope that you will too. I'm very excited for you to hear this episode with Pauline. So let's get into it. Hi, Pauline. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to chat. We have a good, important topic today. But before that, I would love for you to just share who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Pauline Ignazar
1: peck and I'm a licensed psychologist. My practice is physically located in Santa Barbara, California, but I see clients all over California, as well as New York, And I also have a program that I'm able to work one-on-one with women globally. And my specialty area is the Daughters of Immigrants. And so I work primarily with women of color. I'm Middle Eastern, Iranian-Armenian, born in Iran. I moved to the U.S. when I was four. And just recognizing the way that I grew up and how many of the messages I got around mental health, and even today we're going to get into body image and food how much of that was mediated and influenced by culture. I in the mental health space, I didn't learn about that in grad school. And I definitely didn't get that in my therapeutic experiences. And so that is my niche and the population that I serve and I'm a member of. And I also specialize in working with intercultural couples as I also am in a marriage like that. And so really my, my, services are a direct reflection of my own pain points as well as the ways I've worked through them, gotten support and resources. And I hope to help even one other woman do it just a little bit more quickly, more easily, and with some more support than I did. And that
0: I think will just mean that my life's purpose has been complete. So that's a little bit about me. And you are, you've already helped many more than one. (laughs) Thank you. This is such a needed specialty. And I mean, after we first spoke, I, a few days later, had the thought of, oh my gosh, we have to talk about this in the context of food. Because as a dietitian, seeing mostly clients who struggle with eating disorders or a history of disordered eating, definitely struggling with body image, this topic comes up a lot. Many of my clients have family members, parents, grandparents who are living in other countries, um, and they'll go to visit and just get comments that can be very triggering. There's there's such a huge cultural component to food, and we'll talk about food specifically, but I think I want to start off talking about um, kind of more broadly the body image, diet, conversations that can come up, which I think really relates to communication styles in other cultures. And so I'm curious what you have to say about that. Like what are some differences that can come up in just how cultures communicate and then how that kind of trickles down to our generation and their mental health?
1: Oh, there's so much loaded in that question. Mm -hmm. I'll even back up to say, you know, culture, I think of it like the way that it was explained to me and it just stuck for me is like, a fish in water. It doesn't really, the fish doesn't even know how much their experience is being influenced by the water because that's just kind of what they know and that's normal to them. And yet it's really important to start beginning to ask questions around how did I learn about what my body should look like? What a good body was versus a not good body was? What foods were okay and what weren't? What needed to be eaten, eaten in moderation? How did I have to think about food? What role did food play? Um, how are different comments, how are comments different for me as a woman versus my brother as a man? So just all of these questions that I think sometimes Unless you run into a problem, sometimes you don't even begin to reflect on how deeply and how pervasively culture impacts how you think about food, how you think about your body, how you relate to food, how you relate to um, others in relationship to them around bodies and food and eating and all of that. There's just so, so much wrapped up in it that I hope that people through listening to this podcast just begin to ask them some questions. Ask themselves some of those reflective questions like, how did I learn about this? How was it talked about? And I think that leads beautifully into the question you asked of what are some of the cultural norms of both my big C culture and big C culture, I talk about race and religion and ethnicity um, and gender, but little C culture, my particular family, because every family kind of does their big C culture a little bit differently within the cultural norms of their particular family. And so then to kind of Think about what were some of the norms and kind of the bigger, broader, you know, like let's say Egyptian culture. What's the bigger, broader Egyptian culture, some of the norms that a lot of people can relate to. And then how did it look in my household and with my parents and the things they said, maybe I lived in an intergenerational, multi-generational household, my grandparents and the comments that they made about food. So, I mean, just even reflecting in my life, food as medicine was a really big one for us. Hey, my grandfather back in Iran was a dentist and someone that was always within the healing world. And my grandmother, having grown up on a farm, just had such a great awareness of herbs and medicines and like they were just healers. And so food as medicine was a really, really big one. Like here's a tincture, here's a tea, here's an herb. So the idea of food as medicine being this like newer thing that people pay a lot of money for in the Western world. I'm like, that's funny. Like food as medicine is so, so old. It's like as old as time. And that was a big thing that was like if we talked about food not just as you know this like pleasurable thing which it definitely was but it also held this like really sacred role of being medicine and that in itself is like how we talked about food was with respect for what those ingredients could also do and so food having this other dual purpose of healing that was something that was in kind of the, both the larger norm as well as really within my family like oh you've got a stomach ache here's that tea or ginger's really good or that like an awareness of food as medicine was a really
0: big one um, as well as food. That that has become a controversial thing too, because in the way that we talk about it now in the U S food as medicine has very much bled into orthorexia and this obsession with health and clean eating, and you know everything you put in your mouth is either helping you or hurting you. And it's so different from the way that other cultures have that rhetoric and belief. And so did you notice any change in that messaging as you grew up, sort of how you felt towards that and then how you see it now? the whole food is a medicine conversation?
1: Absolutely. And I think that in my family and more broadly, the food is medicine was also taken with this food as pleasure and community building and connection. And I think it was in the balance of these two things that it remained healthy. It's like Mm -hmm. food can be medicinal. It can help with a stomach ache or a headache. It can help you with this, that, and the other. And it is pleasurable and it feels good and it's sensory and it's just, it's something that connects us. Mm-hmm. And then that doesn't have to be that every single thing you put in your mouth has to be medicine. Food is not only medicine; it can be that in terms of knowing herbs and that sort of thing. So I think that any message that is taken out of a fuller, more holistic context of the multi layered meanings of food, I think that's where it becomes really problematic and Food as only medicine and only like in you know taking in food that is going to heal you and being in this more kind of hypervigilant and anxious relationship with food. I think that is where it gets problematic, even under the guise of wellness. And so I think that's one big thing. One big thing I see in like cultural kind of collectivistic cultures is like food is connection food as having this kind of medicinal quality to it. Um, food is also part of fun. Food is part of tradition and carrying on cultural traditions and Mm -hmm. far less, I think, than the Western world of like counting and calories. And, you know, there's not a lot of tracking that kind of happens. Like I'd hear comments like, oh, I've done, oh, I've had a lot of tea today. And I didn't like this more awareness of like an intuitive way of knowing where your body is and how it feels and using that to kind of gauge what would feel good for it. Like Mm -hmm. that feels a little bit more Eastern to me and growing up and kind of this Western, I ate this, here's that calorie count, here's the nutritional value of this. I've got the back of the box that I could look at that's going to break down the macros, like that's very Western, and I didn't grow up like that. And I think in college, I remember having some conversations with others where they're like, "That's a lot of calories," and I like didn't even realize like, "Oh yeah, this has like I didn't really know something like something really concrete is fruits and nuts. Like you always have dried fruits and nuts like around the house. Like that's such a Middle Eastern thing. And you know, noshing on a bunch of nuts, and then somebody saying to me, "Oh my gosh, that's so many calories. That's like so much fat," and me not really even knowing like what the constitutional like value, you know, like what, like what the caloric intake was, what the fat ratio was, it was like, oh, nuts are just something that is just like really acceptable normative snack to have in between meals. And so this kind of hypervigilance around what you're putting in your body and is it support, like that feels like a really extreme um, movement away from some of the cultural messages I got around food growing up.
0: And that reminds me, I was thinking about this as you were speaking earlier about kind of the moments that people can have that make you realize, oh, I thought of this this way because of my culture and my upbringing. And so it sounds like college was a big moment for you. Do you notice any patterns or similarities in your clients of those moments? Like what are the things that tend to occur in people's lives that make them aware of Mm -hmm. the difference in their upbringing from maybe the environment that they're in now.
1: Yeah, completely. I think that so many moments for me were when I was, you know, having an interaction with somebody outside of my cultural background. So I remember I tell my mom, you know, make me, you know, peanut butter jelly sandwiches so I could be like the other kids. And then she'd make them on pita. not on pita, mom. <laughs> well, like I wanted it on white, you know, white bread. Yeah. Bread with the crust taken off and my mom would get like whole wheat pita. And I'm like, darn it, mom. Like, no. So it was the reason I wanted that is because during lunchtime, as I'd open up mm. my meals, my meals look different than the meals that somebody else was having they didn't look like the white american meals and i wanted lunchables and i wanted the crustless bread and i wanted all those things and you know it was in those interactions outside of my community because my next door neighbors um they were egyptian and they had pita bread as well and so i remember very vividly sitting down and sitting with nancy and eating you know nancy and chatty eating our pita you know peanut butter, jelly, pita sandwiches. And that felt like there was no difference, even though we were from different ethnicities versus when I went to school and interacted with kind of people from the white American culture that was like, Oh, this is, this is a bad thing. I remember feeling negatively about my home cooked foods and the foods that look differently. So those moments, for sure moments in college of like, Oh, what, you know, you don't, you don't diet or, you know, Oh, that has a lot of calories. in it. these moments where, I was othered because of the food. It was almost like food became a marker of difference. And the more that I assimilated and the more my lunches began to resemble white lunches, the more like I felt like a sigh of relief that I was fitting in. Mm-hmm. So part of my journey of healing and part of the journey of healing with other daughters of immigrants have been to reclaim some of the foods that they've really disowned growing up. And realizing, you know, that food, you know, each can have a very varied relationship with food and it doesn't, you know, it's not always healthy what we get from our cultures, but can we reclaim the part of them, the the part of, of our relationship with food that is culturally healing for us and supportive for us and makes us feel connected and integrated as people. And so moments of difference. When I was othered for my food, those are ones that really stick out. And I have not met a single daughter of immigrant who has not had one of those moments. Like, what is that? It reminds me of like my big fat big wedding where it's like, what are you eating? And she's like, moussaka. And they're like, moussaka. That moment is something every single daughter of immigrant will know. And then later, how it gets packaged as this really exotic, wonderful food that's sold back to you four times the price. Or now is like very exotic and exciting and you know, you're seeing in a restaurant reclaimed and appropriated. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's a really that's a kind of the conflictual piece of feeling like your food was othered, you were othered, but then now it's almost like popular to have ethnic,
0: yeah. Right. And so that process of feeling forced into assimilation How do you think that tends to affect someone's relationship with food from a place of the ease of then slipping into disordered eating? You know, when you assimilate into American food culture versus maybe someone who just really stays within their own food culture, um, what effect does that have on perception of food and relationship with food?
1: Yeah. And I think just adding to that is like the relationship with the body. I think assimilation is like, I want to look like you, I want to eat like you, I want to smell like you, I want to talk like you, I want my name to be pronounceable, you know, I want all of these things. And so the lunches for me were one small part of many different aspects of trying to be as white as I could be. And the truth is, because I am so, I've got, you know, white assuming privilege, Mm -hmm. then, you know with my fair skin, with my light skin, that that was a task that I was able to almost accomplish. And like I said, food almost like would give it away sometimes, but my name didn't. And it almost felt like if I could keep my body looking a certain way, because I had definitely body image stuff growing up, it's like, if I could keep my body looking a certain way, then the assimilation process would be that much easier. And so I've seen how it's not just the foods, it comes with, it's like That's one of those things, but there comes with all these other ways in which, you know, as women of color, we try to squeeze ourselves into that mold, whether it's the beauty mold, whether it's the thin mold, whatever it is, it's like, I want to assimilate because that's going to mean safety for me. That's going to mean I'm accepted. That's going to mean um, I'm going to have opportunities that I might not otherwise have. So I can't tell you how many women hated their curves growing up. For me, I hated my curly hair, um, which is all relationship to your body, which then I think mediates so much your relationship to food. Because when you can't change your relationship to your body, you know, or you don't love your body because you don't see your body as, as helping you feel accepted and you don't see other bodies like you. And it becomes a point of difference than food, than exercise, these things that can be really wonderful parts of life, moving your body and getting to engage in your senses, they almost become control mechanisms for you to be able to assimilate, get that approval, get ahead, have opportunity, be accepted. And then as you get, you know, a little older and puberty and all of that, then dating and be desirable. So this added layer of then being desirable, you know, men or, you know, and that's for heterosexual women, but men or other partners may not find me attractive if I, and then you fill in the blank, have curly hair, have wider hips, have thicker breasts, have darker skin, have whatever it might be. You know, mm-hmm. if I, you know, I'm hairy by nature, let's say, like I'm actually not, but it's a big Middle Eastern thing. You know, women are like, oh my gosh, I. Grew a unibrow at the time it was like nine and a half, right? It's just like these are differences in bodies, but how much you try and control the body, shape the body, tweeze the body, get rid of the body, thin the body, lighten the body, in order to be more desirable. And so there's, I think, the food conversation, the body image conversation, just sits alongside all the other ways that women of color squeeze themselves in through the process of assimilation and the lighter you are and the closer you are to some of these ideals, I think it becomes almost like a little bit of an illusion that you can just almost make it. The
0: truth is you'll never make
1: it. You will, you'll just be disowning parts of yourself. You can never be something you're not.
0: Yes. It's exactly the conversation that I think it more broadly relates to just body image in general. And that idea that you mentioned this, False sense of control. If I can just control my body a little more, I'll be happy. And no matter what that context and end goal is, it pretty much never works. Um, and I'm curious, you know, when you were going through these times of hating the curly hair, hating the curves, just really actively fighting with your body, were you expressing that to? Your parents, grandparents, family, people within your culture, and what was the response that you were getting?
1: Oh goodness. We like I I can't imagine I did.
0: Mm-hmm. That I
1: can't remember it tells me no. Yeah. Because the thing is, you know, in the first question you asked, you asked, like, what are some of the cultural differences and what are some of the ways in which culture impacts the the discussions around food and body image? You know, Within my culture, there was also this push to assimilate. This also buying into whiteness being better. Yes. That would mean safety. So remember, like, you know, not my parents, but different people saying it's so good you don't speak with an accent or it's really good that you have light eyes or, oh, you can straighten your hair from time to time. You look really white. So really active conversations around the you know, this cultural pressure to be as white as possible and to assimilate as much as possible. And so then, you know, you're getting some of the cultural pressure and influence to move in that direction. There's colorism at play. There's kind of, you know, fat phobia and kind of a design to be as thin as possible because that's that's desirable. Not as possible, I will say, then you get, oh, you're too thin. So just this like... Hi. It's like very narrow. You don't know when you're going to cross that line, but people will tell you. It's like this impossible moving right. target.
0: Because, yeah, because within your, like your, um, whether it was parents, grandparents, whoever, before they moved here, what was that, or was there a, that kind of standard and ideal? Like was the drive for whiteness and thinness kind of long standing, or no, that was more recent once they were settled here?
1: Yeah, I feel like, It was probably longer than them just coming here, but absolutely more amplified when you look around and the majority don't look like you. And you were trying to fit in. You were trying to get ahead. You were trying to not stand out. And so I think that I probably didn't go to my parents or my grandparents because somewhere in the soup of immigration for the whole family, there was this the closer you'd get to some of these, again, looking like them, talking like them, eating like them that there's, that's going to be helpful for you. And at the same time, there's also this grief around that. And so don't dress like them and don't be like them in these ways. So it's a really confusing double message. And so I don't know if I would have known to go to my parents and say, I hate my curly hair. What do I do with it? Because on one day I could get, oh, it's so good that you look white. That's great. And then on the other day, it could be, how dare you hate that? You know, other people in our family have had curly hair and you know, that's your family origin. So it's this this like double messaging around whiteness both being something to strive for and whiteness being something to be afraid of that you have to make sure to protect your culture against that um, diffusion. And so I just feel like it had this really push and pull. The place that I would have gone with those things and I did go to those things were my Middle Eastern friends. And yet what I got from them because they also probably hated their bodies in a number of different, you know, ways and reasons was more just solidarity, but sometimes also like tips and tricks in terms of how to, how to do this better and how to do that better. And I still feel like my, with my friends, that there's still sometimes discussions around how to shift and shape and change our bodies rather than this kind of acceptance-based place that I, I'm finding I'm, I'm in more often and want to be in kind of continuously.
0: Right. I mean, I think we all have those conversations, you know, I'm hearing and engaging in the conversation of, Oh, you get Botox. Where do you go? Should I do it? Is this good? Is it, you know, there are so many standards we're all conforming to. And what you talk about is unique. I think especially I would love to hear more about the body image piece and the reaction and conversation of, you know, yes, be thinner, be smaller, but not too thin. Because that is something I hear all the time from my clients. This, like, no matter what I do or how much I conform or don't, like, something's always wrong and my family's going to say it. Yes. So uh, can you share more about that? This, like, in between of the standards and ideals and feeling like it's a losing battle no matter what.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, back to something else too, is that in Western culture, talking about your appearance definitely talking about weight, like weight, age, money, these are things like you don't talk about. They're very taboo topics. They're not taboo topics in other cultures. Right. Weight is not that taboo in Armenian-Iranian culture. Money is sometimes not that taboo. Age is not that taboo, Mm -hmm. right? They don't carry the exact same meaning. They're not loaded with the exact same kind of messaging and associations. And so, you know, a, a clear example of this is when I went through puberty, like when my brother went through puberty, he's three years older, he was, you know, a little bit rounder in body shape. And as he kind of shot up through puberty and became taller, his body just kind of elongated and he was a lot thinner. And for me, it just, my bumps and lumps were coming out. That's how puberty kind of presented for me. And I got so many, you know, comments about my body and my mm-hmm. body changing during that time. And I think if I tell somebody who's outside of my culture, there's like the, oh my God, that must've been so hard for you. And that was really, really difficult. And yet there was this other added piece to me of, it wasn't that taboo for your body to be talked about. Like it didn't have the full weight that it would have for me if I were just from like an American culture, a white culture. Like Mm -hmm. there was this piece of like my grandmother would notice my skin color and kind of say, Oh, maybe you have like an iron deficiency. You're not drinking enough water that, you know, like, Oh, your skin looks a little drier here. It's just like discussions around your body body were not completely off limits taboo meant to take you down so they had this like I honestly had one foot in this world and one foot in that world of you're not supposed to talk about weight and thinness is beautiful and all of that stuff like I, I you know grew up here since four years old on but I also had this other part of like feeling very loved by my grandmother knowing she would never make like a slight you know snide comment to me that was just not my grandma she was unconditional love and constant care and I remember her saying you've gained weight and it was like for her a statement like a fact I had gained weight and my body looked different she's like and you have breasts. And I remember her, like, grabbing at my breasts. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> this is so, There was a part of me that was like, this is so embarrassing. I'm going to die. And right. there was another part of, like, this is my grandma, who's, like, very, right. like, you know, handsy. And that would be, like, such a common thing for her to say. And we, like, laughed yeah. about you know, it. Like, she's been gone for a couple of year, no, years now. But we, like, laugh about that with all my female mm-hmm. cousins. Just that level of kind of comfort. And not seeing that as like, oh my gosh, a boundary crossing and a taboo topic and I'm saying this and it's going to hurt her feelings because we don't talk about bodies. And so I, I use this a lot and I've got a freebie d on it that people can, can access and then a whole mm-hmm. kind of shortened course on it if they want more. But I, I offer this thing called the translation. And I have a translation guide and I help in terms of like with boundary setting, recognizing that not everything that is said that triggered you has the same meaning for the person that said it. And I have this very critical moment when my grandmother commented on my body and I would for the first time, I think was wearing a bra and was very like, oh my gosh, you know about it. She commented and I went to the bathroom and I started to cry. I remember my mom came to the bathroom and she said, you know, what's going on? And I said, I can't believe she's like talking about my body and she's saying that, you know, now i rest and I feel so embarrassed. And she said, what are you embarrassed about? Grandma's noticing you're you're becoming a woman. And what she means, like, think about it. She grew up on a farm and my grandmother was very tall, big bone structure like she was not a very thin woman like she's like look at her grandma was you know grew up on a farm she's strong she's seeing you kind of grow and get taller and get she also noticed that your hair was cut she's also noticed that you seem a little quieter today than usual like this is not grandma saying you've gained weight how bad you should die this is grandma noticing your body is changing because she is noticing you And if you've lost weight, she would have said, oh, you've lost weight. Is everything okay? She's basically saying, I'm seeing you. I'm noticing something's happening with you. How are you? That's what she Mm -hmm. is saying. It's not loaded with all of this other stuff. And my mom had the keen awareness to know that I was taking it like she was making a critical comment. And from Mm -hmm. that moment, I've used that translation that sometimes when your family says something, Can you take a second and say, them saying you gained weight, very different than if you gain weight like this, you'll never find a husband. Right. That's different than you've gained weight. You've gained weight. You cut your hair. You cut Mm -hmm. your hair is not a, your hair looks bad. It's you cut your hair. And I'm noticing, and sometimes because in Western culture, the body is so taboo to talk about, unless you're saying you look fantastic. That I think we can transpose and superimpose those messages onto what your family says when they don't have the same cultural lens. And in translation, especially within the context of my relationship with my grandma, where not for a second have I ever questioned her supporting me and unconditionally loving me, she was the easiest person for me to translate because I knew she wouldn't say something that would make me feel badly or be critical of me. It just wasn't in the woman's nature. She could never say, something bad about anybody. And so that really helped me to like recognize that the translation piece could be really useful. That sometimes when you take that statement, you've got to take it from the person saying it, not the way it hit you. Of course it hit you a certain way. So you've got your own feelings to sometimes deal with, but especially with family where these are long kind of ongoing relationships, translation really helps to say there are times where I have talked about being really tired and all my hair feels like this and I'm really tired. So I'm noticing that drink a lot of water, make sure you take that. And that for me is my, my family noticing, but around weight, it carried all this other stuff. And that I, I will say one other thing to that is the translation piece is really important as well as recognizing that there are things from our cultural backgrounds that are so wrong and unhealthy and just backwards and, you know, it's it's like I say, always with culture, you have to engage with it to see what are you going to accept? What are you going to edit? And what are you going to discard? Mm-hmm. So the acceptance and the, the fixing it is like the translation. It's like She said that it is a comment on my body. She's actually asking like, are you okay? I'm noticing changes or I'm just noticing changes in you. I'm noticing you. So it's a check-in. It's maybe even wanting to be Opening a you know a conversation that's connected, mm-hmm. right? And except is we cook for people that we love, and food can be this connecting thing. The negative is what I said: of if you eat like that, nobody's going to love you. Don't be out in the sun because you're getting so dark, and that's bad. That's the colorism, the sexism. The you have to watch what you eat. You gotta be more disciplined with that. Or oh, look at how right. this looks. Nobody's going to love you. Like those messages around your body and having to be hypervigilant and this like impossible, like you said, task of being thin enough, but not too thin. It's like in whose eyes constantly changing. Um, These things are really unhealthy. Like the connection between what your body looks like and your worth and your lovability and your beauty is just so much more than what you look like at all. So those are the things that discards from a lot of the cultural angle. And I'm not saying everything needs to be translated. We've got to have that engagement with this comment and this comment fitting into a larger framework. And is that a framework that we want to live by that connects with our values? Is it something we want to discard? Is there something to fix in it or is it a total discard? And so it does take for the daughters of immigrants, some extra steps of navigating. It's not just everything your family says is negative and it's not everything they say is cultural and healthy. It's like, no, it's both. So you've got to kind of use your intuition, your rational, reasonable mind, understanding of their cultural context versus yours as a bicultural and multicultural being. It takes multiple kind of considerations
0: to it is a tall order. <laughs> it really, really is, and that is why I'm glad we have you there. I have so many thoughts. I love everything you said, um, and I want to talk more about the family piece because this translation tip and insight is incredible. And I love that you even said that you knew like what your grandmother said was just a statement it was just a fact and that's really you know how i coach my clients on body image too just in thinking about how they're talking to themselves of don't talk to yourself with that added judgment can you change your language to just what is factually true because it's so much different and it just takes away that emotional charge and so with comments about body, when it is a fact, it's just a fact. And that can be really helpful. Um, the other piece of what you said, adding on these beliefs of you're not going to get married if you stay this size or keep eating this way or whatever, that, of course, is harmful. And, you know, something that can be really challenging for people, because I think, you know, there can be this experience of growing up in your culture, not really knowing um what's different or just mostly being surrounded by your family or like you mentioned your neighbor or friend who like you felt close to and similar to. And then once you leave and kind of realize what was maybe unhelpful, then going back with a new lens, like let's say someone is doing a lot of work on body image and their relationship with food and intuitive eating and they're progressing and then go home for the holidays. This is something that I talk about with all of my clients and it's always stressful. They go home and they're like, I just know that grandma's going to say XYZ or all of my mom's sisters are going to say XYZ And because maybe I have gained weight or I am single or whatever it is. But you know, so many people will tell me like, yes, I can set XYZ boundary. I can tell them this isn't helpful. I don't want to hear this. And with some family members it doesn't work. You know, I can say that I can communicate this, but like it is just in their nature. And I think it can be especially challenging with older generations, even Americans. You know, I think just as people age, many tend to lose their filter, be a little more blunt and straightforward. So what are the tips you have for those situations where you can be doing everything you can in your power to better your own relationship with yourself and food and body, and then still be in these situations that can feel incredibly triggering.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is the crux of what I like help people to do is like, how do you stay connected so that you are still able to go home for the holidays? You're not just completely cutting off your family and not going to any family functions, which is going to hurt you ultimately because you lose a certain connection just mm-hmm. to be able to protected you, you mentioned, you know, that sometimes setting boundaries doesn't work another time and other times setting boundaries can be punished or retaliated against. It's just mm. not okay. A lot of, you know, non-Western um, cultures are patriarchal or hierarchical. There is like hierarchical. There is, you know, the respecting of elders like there. It would just be um, there's also not a verbal direct discussion of things as well. And so you'd be breaking a lot of different cultural norms to even say, hey, grandpa, don't do that. Like that would take so many layers of, you know, like violations, culturally (laughs) speaking, that it would be really, really hard to even expect that you can set certain boundaries. And so when I say when boundaries won't work, when boundaries might get retaliation or when boundaries are so hard to even make, then we've got to stop looking at them as our only way to have a different experience and begin to look at how we can shift to other kinds of coping as well as other kinds of boundary setting. So I talk a lot in my course of not of every boundary has to be direct, firm, and verbal. It can be a non-verbal that you're eating something, right? Nobody will, will love you. And you say, and you keep eating, and you can't yeah. like see, but it's just like a little like, mm. we call it like a notch in Farsi, you know? You're like, ah. and you just kind of like, ah, leave me alone, little twist yeah. of the hand, face turned away, because these are cultures that have a million ways of saying no without saying no, because saying no would be kind of a disgrace, and it would you know, have you know, a lack of harmony. Harmony is so important in collectivistic cultures. You do everything to preserve harmony, And so then it doesn't have to be verbal. It doesn't have to be direct. Also Mm -hmm. remember, a boundary is not a rule for somebody else. Don't talk this way. A boundary is when they start talking about that I'm not dating, that I'm overweight now, and I'm not gonna find a a husband if I do this. If they start talking about that, that's a great time for me to be like, oh my gosh, I hear Maya in the other room and to go play with the kid. Mm -hmm. Where's the dog? that's a boundary you're setting with yourself when they engage in topics that I just know we have completely different worldviews on and I don't have to change them. And I can't change them. Even if I wanted to, you cannot mm-hmm. change somebody's way of thinking. Grandpa is not going to change his thoughts about body image right? You know, in any way, shape or form. And so in that moment, the boundary is not a rule that you have for somebody else. It's not a request that you have for somebody else. It is only what you're going to do with yourself. It is only, okay, how do I use these indirect little ways of being able to get out of this conversation? So lots of little like, where are the exits in this? That's really, really useful because most Mm -hmm. family members are not going to be able to, especially at the grandparent level, oh, forget about it. And then what coping do you need? So before you go home, maybe you need to write down a list of your worldview as it comes to body image. And then when you go there, you recognize translation is good for this. You're visiting another country with other ways of being and other ways of living. When you go to France and they say something French and it doesn't match with your worldview, you don't have to be triggered by it. You just say, oh, that's different. That's different than what I hold. And you can come back to holding what you know is true for you. And then you can use those little nonverbal, indirect, even playful. You know, someone's like, don't eat that. You're like, oh, is that taro for you offering me to eat another one? Thank you so much. I'll eat another one. I'm like, bring some playfulness using certain things within your culture in order to do it. What it takes is tolerating that you are not always going to make others feel comfortable Mm -hmm. by leaving those conversations, by not engaging. And that's okay. I think a huge struggle for the daughters of immigrants is not taking on the responsibility of always having family members feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so, If you don't engage with that conversation around dating, if you don't give that reaction when it comes to the body image or the food comments, like they might be uncomfortable or they might see that as disrespectful that you disengage from that conversation. And then you've got to leave room for that happening because that maybe is more important to you than going into a tailspin of, you know, all the healing work that you've been doing for months before you went. And so other kinds of copings, can you turn the volume down? I say, like, okay. Can you pretend that your uncle's talking underwater? So you look at him and you're like, hmm. And what you're hearing is, yeah. <laughs> that's, it, that's a coping mechanism when you can't. Like Charlie up, Brown, adults. <laughs> Charlie Brown, exactly. It's like you have all these other tools for co- for coping. And I think again, in the Western world, we're just like boundaries. Everything is boundaries, and you're like, what about acceptance? What mm. about coping in other ways? What about saying? I really respect this person and I also recognize me talking to them in this way is going to like bring on a whole host of other problems. I am much more resourced than they are emotionally speaking. I am much more kind of aware than they are. If I've gone and done all of this work around body image, I've got literally more information and education and resource and knowledge. Can I actually allow myself to operate with the highest level of integrity where I'm not going to like even let myself be... Triggered by something that's happening.
0: Right. I mean, something that I have offered to clients is you know, if all of your friends or all of your family are just constantly talking about maybe not you, but their own weight loss and body image and diets, can you even frame that as like, wow, I'm so sorry for them that that is the only thing they can connect on?
1: Totally. Like when, especially when women, you know, say certain things about you'll never be a wife or what kind of wife are you? What kind of mom? It's like, wow, that reflects what their own relationship is. Yes. You no, know, it's like, wow, that's like, you know, maybe you own your own business. You got a master's degree. You've been doing all these amazing, mm-hmm. you're traveling the world. It's like, look what a different woman, maybe your mom or your grandma is than you are and cannot right. be an indicator of like, oh, wait a second. When we, you know, you can't help being triggered but allowing yourself to get emotionally like revved up when somebody has like a lesser understanding than you. Like last night for my free book club, we were talking about the adult children of emotionally immature parents. Like when your emotionally immature parent might say something is like you, just like you wouldn't get down to the toddler's level, having the tantrum or saying the ridiculous thing, you don't have to stoop to that. And you can kind of preserve Your value system, the truth of what you know, the awakening that I think happens when people realize all the like negative shit that they've incorporated around food, around body image, it's freedom. It's total, total freedom. You know, like I just went, this is just a little side tangent, but I went on vacation a couple weeks back and- you know, we were going to go to the pool with the kids and I got like two seconds to get ready. And I threw on the suit and I went and I took a picture and I put it on my Instagram, like a summer body is what I wrote just a body in the summer. And so many women responded, like, I want to get there. I'm just not. And it was one of the first times in my life, Michelle, I didn't think twice about being in a bathing. I was so engaged with being with my kids that my body was just a vehicle that was taking me to get to the pool. And I just thought like, I just had so much, I'm almost like getting teary thinking about it, like so much compassion for my younger self, like my 18 mm-hmm. year old putting on a bathing suit could have probably been like its own thing that it's just, the more you work, I will keep saying this is like the more you work on your own healing and the more you engage with a life that is in line with your values, then even when you go home and they make those comments, it's like, it doesn't have to get to you in the same way. You do see them as not matured. You do see them as having lesser understanding and you can actually have compassion for them that how sad that that mm-hmm. is occupy such a large part of their mind that they wouldn't even be able to go to the pool or engage in this activity because they would be so preoccupied and that was me at some point and how wonderful that I've given myself the resources so the boundaries are really not just physical not just in what you say or don't say non-verbally they're emotional maybe when you pack up you also pack up a part of your heart, a part of your psyche, and you go recognizing not a hundred percent of you has to be there because your family may not be able to hold and tenderly, beautifully, kindly be with a hundred percent of you. And there's grief there. Oh my God, but I'm going home and I'll have to like hold back a little. There is grief there, but there's also beauty because there are spaces. You will be able to be your 100% self. And that's not always with our family.
0: So much at once. Yeah. It's so true. It is so true. I feel like I need an applause sound effect for for that. And i I'm so curious to hear from you because I know you now have your own family. What are your thoughts for how you want your kind of nuclear culture and just the broader culture of daughters of immigrants to move forward into the next generation in this food and body image realm. What are the things that you are actively doing and hope to continue in your lifetime for the generations to come to shift this narrative and really exist in that in between of preserving the beautiful things and shedding what's not serving.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is all what breaking cycles is about. I talk about how I, I really, I think there's this divine intervention that I had a son first because I don't think three years ago I was ready to have a daughter yet. I have a six month old mm. daughter now, almost seven months. And I think even in the last three years, I've done work around some of my internalized body image issues, internalized kind of thin fat phobia, like all of these things, things that were unhealthy. And the work that I've done with the daughters of immigrants and am doing with them as well as becoming a mom and just recognizing how amazing my body is because of what it can do, not what it looks like, that that really happened Mm -hmm. for me as well as really tolerating living at the edges. Like I was probably like the thinnest in my adult life when I got married to then the heaviest I've ever been when I was pregnant. And then everything Mm -hmm. in between in the postpartum journey, three, you know, three years later that I think, Mm -hmm it really helped to kind of living in a variety of body sizes just kind of helped me realize the ridiculousness of what we attach body size to. And I've done so much work. And I think I needed to do that work in order to then be able to raise a daughter. So by the age of six, little girls hate certain parts of their bodies. And little yeah. boys, even though the research is showing There is parity in terms of eating disorders and certain things are getting closer to parity. It's not there yet. And it still does disproportionately impact young girls and women. And I think it is so important for me not to talk about my body the way that I heard other people talk about their bodies or even more, I will say, other people's bodies. So other people talk about other people's bodies because that is, like I saw a meme about this of like, the Middle Eastern aunt that everyone has. And she's just like, what is she wearing? That doesn't look good on her. She's gone fat. And I'm like, everybody's got that auntie. Everybody has that auntie. It makes such a difference.
0: I have to share this story. My mom told me about this um, a couple of years ago. So, my mom's mom is from Mexico. And so her, she grew up in Texas, her family's Mexican. And she told me that she has a very big extended family. And so as a kid, she went to a lot of wakes and funerals for great, great, whatever relatives. Um, and she told me that women, the women in her extended family would be at open casket wakes, criticizing the appearance of a literal dead body. Like, oh, they didn't do her up very well. I was so oh. mind blown. <laughs> like, it can be very extreme. Oh,
1: and then probably after you die, they're still talking about yes. you. Yes. <laughs> 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 You're like, turning over in your grave, all they still got to say something about the outfit you yeah. wore. You know, <laughs> Unbelievable. It's totally unbelievable. So I really think that that self-deprecating, like that stereotypical, when we think of like the stereotypical white mom with anorexia, who's like beating herself up in front of the mirror in front of her daughter, that exists less in, I think, the Middle Eastern culture than women talking about other women's bodies in a negative way. And so I think that, you know, my mom, I don't remember her saying really negative things, but I do remember women talking about other women. And that I want to break. I don't yeah. want it to, if I'm talking about other women, I want to talk about their strengths. I want to talk about their heart. I want to talk about the good things that they're doing. I don't want to be talking about women's bodies. I don't really want to be talking about anybody's bodies. Like to be honest, they're just, it's just not that interesting. It's, I was going to say the exact same thing. not that interesting. It's not. <laughs> you genetically have this like range. You can like play around with it, but you've just got this like limited range of things that you can do. Whereas everything else from mindset to what you're like, mm-hmm. I think that which also happened as a mom of like the recognition of there's so much internal stuff, like being a mom, becoming a mom was hard. Being a mom is hard. And there's so much more, I think appreciation and respect I have for like how hard it is to have a healthy mindset, a healthy relationship to yourself, a self compassionate inner voice, how hard it is to work on your triggers and to work on your stuff from childhood. Like that I now, that's what I want to talk about. That's the stuff that I actually see is so much more important. So it is important for me to have done my own work around it. And some work, I, like I said, I didn't even know until I got pregnant. And then all the shifts and shapes, you know, shapes that I then inhabited brought up my stuff and I was able to work through them as well as have a just newfound appreciation for my body. And my body is also a place. My body is still literally the safest place for that my daughter knows the second i come home and she sees me and she's on my chest it's like i can tell she's just like i'm home like i that that to me is so important in terms of that's how we break cycles we don't do the things that were done we take accountability we do the work around it and then my daughter can hear me talking about other women lifting them up and working to acknowledge the internal things that they've been through, even to compliment them. You look so happy. I've started to say that rather than I really like your or you look and then give a compliment that's completely appearance in nature. I'm Like you look so happy. or I love the way your energy is in that outfit. Like that that's is another way that I've really begun to say, because honestly, no matter what you say to your kids, it's what they see you say to others about others and to yourself, that's, what's going to become their running dialogue. And I really want my daughter to have a different experience and far more un, far less unlearning. Like I want her to get it right the first time. So she doesn't have to do all of the unlearning that I had to do
0: and for it to be just less complicated for her. Yeah. I love that. That idea of just complimenting people's energy, their actual character that they have control over, not their body. And, you know, I don't have kids. And even if you don't have kids, like anyone you're around, just having more of a positive influence on your community still has a big impact. Friends, whomever. It's, It's so important to change that language. And you are doing it. You are breaking cycles. You are taking many women along with you. So I... I mean, could ask you a million more things, but I know we're like almost an hour here. So I would love for you to share how women who are really relating to this can join with you, learn from you and, you know, change their own lives and families and generations. So tell everybody everything that you have going on because it's amazing stuff.
1: Amazing. Thank you. This is, oh, this gave back to me so, so much. So you can find me on Instagram, Pauline, the psychologist, all one word. And I have all my offers there. You can also check out my website, NUR, N-O-O-R. NUR means light in Farsi. It means pomegranate and Armenian. So Wellness.com. and I've got the freebie. If you want to just kind of get a taste for the translation guide, that's the freebie for under 50 bucks. I've got a really quick and dirty course. It's like, um, 36 minutes, I think, Uh, and you can get, this is all both on my website, as well as the offers uh, story highlight on my Instagram. So I've got the course on boundary setting, how to set boundaries with your immigrant parents. And then if you want to do more than that, then I've got the one-on-one culture and connection transformation program, where I really lead daughters of immigrants in this one month high touch program, where it's me and you working on some of these intergenerational trauma pieces, helping you with self-care, you know, giving you some of the tools that for, you know, a decade plus and my lone life experience, most daughters of immigrants need. And so that's my kind of educational psych program. And then I have a private practice in Santa Barbara that I was talking about earlier. I've got two associates that both see individuals as well as run groups. So I have a group for the daughters of immigrants that's coming up here in the summertime, as well as working with daughters of immigrants on a one-to-one basis. Um, and then another fun thing is next month is the BIPOC Mental Health Month. July is BIPOC Mental Health Month. Amazing. So not exactly sure when this will air, but if it ends up being before the end of the month, we've I've got a free workshop on dating and relationships. And that's one where, oh my gosh, does mm-hmm. our relationship food and body image and worth all come up and come out. Um, So if you want some free guidance on that, me and a wonderful trauma-informed therapist from Australia are running this free workshop all about, it's called love beyond expectations, all about dating and relationships for the daughters of immigrants. So find me, follow me, get my freebie, get the course. And if you ever want to read about topics that are around mental health or particular to the daughters of immigrants. I also have a free book club called the Cultured Book Club and you can sign up. I do giveaways and free reading guides and once a month hop on live and just talk about the book. So I got I got goodies at every level, every stage of support, every price point. I got lots got of stuff. Going everything
0: on. going on. Incredible. Yeah, so- and I will link all of that in the show notes so people can find it very easily. Awesome. Before I let you go, I have to ask, what is your favorite um like family recipe it
1: is my mom's garmir pilaf which is red rice and it is this thing where we have not been able to recreate it so my mom passed away 15 years ago my sister and i have made a million rendition of (sighs) renditions of it we can't get it just right but every time we try It's just this like red rice, and it's it's got chunks of meat in it. It, It's got the crispy bottom, which is the tadik. It's just so divine. But she did something with that. It's like mom from the other world, from heaven. Please help us know what we're
0: missing. (laughs) Send something.
1: Something, you know, send us something, girl. It is so yummy the way that she used to make it, and we've gotten close, but no cigar. So it's one of those that like think just that we haven't been able to hit it just right keeps us trying to make it again and again so that red right. rice will never be in my heart as just like yummy it's also got these like little green beans in it it's just super mm, it's nice. like a simple
0: thing but if
1: it were so simple why can't we make it right <laughs> so
0: there's like, something in there
1: yeah so that one is a my my grandmother's dolma which are the grape leaves that was on um. a whole nother level but we don't try to make that that's like the- <laughs> one, that one, she took to her grave. Like we can't recreate that. That That's so funny. You know, ninety years of knowledge that will never. And I also say this is like it's funny with the recipes. You ask your immigrant parents how you make that, they're like a little this, a little that. There's, you're never gonna recreate it. So the Dolma we try the karmia praloff. We've we've definitely given it our best go. So my sister Mel, if you're listening to this, let's give it another. We got we got a we've got our lifetimes, but we
0: keep trying. Yes, maybe once you're 90, you'll nail it.
1: <laughs> Can you imagine like the age that she was when she died. Somehow it's like unlevel, like
0: let, yes. next level. Uh, talk, <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. I love that. I'm going to hold that on. I've yes. got to live Keep trying and report back. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was so fun. Awesome, thanks. And there you have it. That is our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it and had some good takeaways. If you did, I would love to hear what's resonating for you. Send me a DM on Instagram or share the episode to your stories and tag me so that I can see that you're listening and hopefully loving it. You can also share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy it and spread some intuitive eating love to everyone around you. As always, five-star ratings and reviews are so appreciated, so you can drop me one of those. Be sure to also check out the show notes for all the links that I mentioned and more information on myself and my nutrition private practice. Other than all that, I hope you have a great day and a great week, and I will catch you in the next episode.